0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. It's good to be here together. As Leona said, we're um, we're in a series on that we're calling Reclaiming the Rainbow. And so if you're a visitor here today, firstly, very warm welcome online, very warm welcome. Uh, We love you, it's great that you can be here. But we've had a couple of weeks on this series and so you're stepping into a family conversation um, that has, we've talked about this as a message for the church that we're called to love the world, shine shine the light of Christ into the world but also we're called to instruct the church. And so that's the context that we're bringing these series of messages in. And uh, it's not a light topic. It's not a light topic. It's a heavy topic. So if you're a note taker, pens out, paper out, phone out, whatever it is you use, and I'm gonna invite you to write the title of today's message, which I'm calling The Great Cover-Up as we dive straight back into Genesis 2 and 3. God, there's a lot of gold in Genesis 2 and 3, isn't there? Somebody? Amen. There's a lot of gold in Genesis 2 and 3. We could sit there over and over again. Uh, the great cover-up. So why don't we go there right now? We're gonna, we'll, start, we'll jump in and out of two. We'll jump into three. We'll jump all over the Word this morning. But I wanna just frame this from verse 25 of chapter two, reading through to verse 13 of chapter three, I'm reading from the NIV. And it simply says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, if you haven't already underlined that in the Bible from the previous few weeks, you gotta underline that thing. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And they realised they were naked. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings, underlined coverings, for themselves. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Oh, I'm getting excited to teach that. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman, (laughs) uh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And we're going to pause right there. Can you stand with me? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, We need your wisdom. We need your mercy. And we need your grace this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak to your people, speak to your church. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do this morning whatever it is that you wanna do. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would refresh our hearts in the knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus this morning. As we dive in and we unpack the Word, would You speak, would my words, any of my agendas, may they all fall to the ground and may Your Word be magnified in our souls. Speak Lord, Your servants are listening. We love You and praise You. We bless You this morning in the precious Name of Jesus. Amen. C.S. Lewis famously once wrote this, and he wrote this a long time ago, but it is so, so prophetic for our day. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you wanna be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road, and in that case, the person who turns back soonest is the most progressive. Are you with me? There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. For going back is the quickest way on. How many of you love C.S. Lewis? What a genius. What a prophetic voice for this moment. Friends, that's what this series is about. This series is about pausing for a moment to really examine the road that progressive secularism has led us to. And it's about pausing long enough to examine that road, to examine whatever is going on. And yes, it might look wide and it might look straight and it might look easy, but if we're prepared to look, as we did last week, at the stats of where it's leading our world, it is very, very clear to see that that road is not leading to the life that it promised, but it's actually leading to death. This whole idea of progressive secularism is not helping humanity, it is hurting humanity, which means it is not progressive at all. But rather we need to examine that road that we're on and we need to stop, we need to do an about turn And we need to recognise that just maybe the way to life is exactly where Jesus says it was, not in the big, wide, easy highway that leads to death, but rather through the small gate and the narrow road that is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that leads to life. That there is a different road, that... Just maybe, as we find ourselves in Him, the Bible over and over again has that phrase, in Christ, it's talking about, that we are hidden in Christ, that we come to Christ. As we come to Him and we say that my identity is not in my sexuality, this is what we talked about last week, that my identity is not in my popularity, that my identity is not in my financial portfolio, my identity is not in others who I say I am, but if we can say my identity is in Christ for all who would say that my identity will not be driven by my feelings, but by the facts of faith, And as we come to that place, that our our identity will not be driven by everything that the world is whispering. That I would see my biology through the lens of biblical theology. There is life. That's what this series is about. And I wanna say something. I wanna try and stay with my notes here. As we begin today, there's something I wanna just make really, really clear. We've had a couple of weeks on this. I wanna articulate this very, very clearly. There is a big difference between embracing pride and struggling with sin. Let's make that clear. We talked, again, we talked about this over the last two weeks, but I wanna say that very clearly. There is a big difference between embracing pride and struggling with sin. You cannot embrace pride and follow Jesus. The two are completely contradictory. You can struggle with sin. You can wrestle with same-sex attraction and be a faithful follower of Jesus. You can, in the same way, wrestle with things like gluttony, lust. You can wrestle with gossip. You can wrestle with slander. There is a whole plethora of, of things the Bible points out that are sinful, that we can struggle with and wrestle with and be faithfully pursuing a life after Christ. We absolutely can That's the point of the Gospel. It's recognising that pride is a struggle for us all. Every single person, there is not a person on this earth who does not wrestle with temptation. There is not a person on this earth who does not occasionally stumble and fall to that temptation. There is no one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the message of the Gospel. We need saving, amen. We need saving. So there's a very big difference between in. in, Engaging in that struggle and saying, but I will not call sin righteousness. Because the very essence of pride is saying, I will stop fighting and I will redefine what sin is. I will actually say what God has called sin, I will declare that that is righteousness. That is what pride is and that we must not ever do. Do you know why? Because to do that is to do exactly what Israel did after the Exodus. To do that is to do what Israel did in fashioning a golden calf and worshipping it as Yahweh. It's to make a God in our own image and then to say, no, 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 but this is Him. The thing that, you know, there's something that ticks me off all the time. It's when people say to me, to me, Jesus is. I don't care who Jesus is to you. It's not about who Jesus is to you. It's about who Jesus is and we submit ourselves to Him. Yes? Otherwise, we're just fashioning a Jesus in our own image. And you can call Him Jesus if you want, but that's not Jesus. Fashioning a Jesus in our own image is just idolatry. Oh, we're getting heavy and it's very early on a Sunday morning. We must be very, very careful to not embrace pride because pride says I'm putting myself above God and I will determine what is right and wrong. I will define truth or lie. I will live my way. That is not the Gospel. You cannot live like that and be a follower of Jesus. You are following yourself. To be a follower of Jesus is to admit, I have many struggles with pride. But God has defined what is sin and so I will choose to lay down those desires no matter how difficult, no matter how strongly they hold me, no matter even if I feel like I've been born with them. If God has said that is sin, I will choose to lay that down. I will submit to Him and I will say, Lord, redeem me renew me, I will choose to be born again. Knowing that that road might be hard, that, might road, that road might be fraught with ups and downs, trips and falls, but I know that even if I stumble, I stumble in His direction. And when I fall, I'm gonna fall on my knees in prayer and thank Him for His grace and His mercy, which is enough for me. Amen? Amen. Friends, I want you to just hear me. All sin leads to death. That is the message of the Gospel. But the way of Christ leads to life. That is the difference between pride and promise. James 1, 13 to 18, James says this beautifully. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. God's heart is that in hearing the truth, we would be born again into the renewed purpose of our created identity. And friends, that's why this series is so important because that message must be declared. That message must be declared. And so it's with that, that we come to this idea, this message of the great cover-up, of this vivid memory, a little over 20 years ago now, which is a bit scary, as an almost 19-year-old riding on a 12-seater bus with a bunch of basketballers, as we were heading to a a game, I think maybe even coming home from a game, we were playing a tournament up in Brisbane, and I had the strangest interaction. Because here we are, almost 19-year-olds, talking, laughing, joking, we'd been together for about a week and it came up on the bus that I was a virgin. Now, that was a shocking moment for these guys. You should have seen them. I've never been in a situation (laughs) quite like it. 12 different guys, every single one of them swivelled around on their chair, eyeballing me and just mouths open, eyes wide, pummeling me with questions. Question after question after question, essentially all asking the same thing from a different angle, which was simply why and how. I'll never forget, this one moment where one of the guys uh, quite, with quite an exasperated tone <laughs> uh, towards the end said this. He goes, but it feels so good. What was he saying? The inference of course being if pleasure is good, why would a good God put boundaries on pleasure? Yeah? If it feels so good, why would a good God put boundaries on pleasure? And to be honest, I don't think my 19 year old self answered that question very well at all. I think I was probably at a point where I just had a conviction. I'd grown up in a Christian home Taught good Christian values, went to Christian schools, really had a personal come to Jesus moment as a 16 year old. So I had this conviction that this was the right thing to do, this is what God wanted me to do. But to be honest, I couldn't really answer that why, other than to say, well, that's what God says. But they weren't looking for a, well, that's what God says, because that's legalism. They wanted to know a deeper why. Why? What is it like? Why would a good God put limits and boundaries around pleasure? It's a fantastic question, isn't it? Yeah? It's, a, it's, it's actually a brilliant question. And the fascinating thing about it is it's a question that's actually still being asked today. You see, my friends asked that question from a particular viewpoint. My friends asked that question 21 years ago when the sexual revolution and the free love movement had absolutely done its work in society. Sex was now very much just a thing that was in society and uh, freely accepted. Everyone just went about doing their own thing. However, the church still had influence. And so it was was a time when, yep, guys like my mates would go around, they'd, they'd sleep with whoever they wanted to sleep with, they'd do whatever they wanted to do. But it wasn't something that was then pushed on society. Things like, Tolerance and acceptance were tolerance and acceptance. Like church still had, there was still this respect in a way for different viewpoints. Now, particularly our young adults and younger, they're still asking the same question but from a different vantage point. Because the landscape has changed. You see, progressive secularism not only has it taken root, but we're now seeing where the plumb line has gone. We're now seeing what we didn't see 20 years ago. And we're seeing that it's no longer just about tolerance and love but, uh, and acceptance, but it's about if you don't celebrate and champion me, then actually that's hateful and I'm gonna silence you. It used to be that that people could dress up in drag and go to a nightclub and dance around New York City and have a great time and do what they wanted to do. Now, people are dressing up in drag at 9am in the morning going in a library and dancing in front of children. It's awfully quiet. But it's true. Something's, something's happened in society. And what we're seeing, and particularly our young adults, Uh, and the younger are actually looking at this road and realising maybe this road isn't what I thought it was. And what we're beginning to see is the beginnings of what you would call post-secularism, which is where people are starting to say, hang on, hang on, hang on. I don't know if this is good and healthy. We're beginning to question the road that we've walked down. Are you with me? I said this a couple of weeks ago. There was a recent study done in London where 1% of people in East London go to church. The study showed that 80% of people aged between 18 and 25, if invited, would come to church. I had one wow. 80% would attend church. Why? Because the foundation has been ripped out from under them because the dam has burst and what we're realising, we talked about the stats last week, is it's not helping. We're not in a good place as society. It's what C.S. Lewis spoke about all those years ago. That progressive secularism actually hasn't benefited us and so all of a sudden people are now asking the questions and going, is this right or is there something else that I should stand on? It's a wonderful time to be alive in the church. It's the perfect time to be able to declare the truth because people are seeking and hungry and they wanna know, can I put my feet on something? And we're entering into this really interesting time where the progressive agenda is being exposed for the lie that it is. It hasn't set people free, rather it's bound them in sin and shame and it's become clear, and is becoming more clear with each passing year. It's a beautiful time, and it's a beautiful moment for the church because the questions are being asked, and guess what? The answers are right here. Because the Bible doesn't just tell us what did happen, what does it do? It tells us what always happens because the same question was being asked right at the beginning of time. It was being asked in the early church. So it's not a new thing. The the enemy's been at this for a very long time, just with different times in history and under different banners, but it's the same question that people have asked and the answers are right here in God's Word does the Bible? Does the Bible have anything to say about sex and love? What is the biblical sexual ethic? Is the biblical sexual ethic oppressive, controlling, stale, hateful? Is it a message that as the, the free love pride movement would have us believe that it devalues sex and steals people's fun? Is that what the Bible actually teaches? And so we're gonna have a crack at that today. And there's a whole lot of things, I don't know how far we'll get, but we're gonna try by addressing some of these questions. Number one, what does the Bible say about sex and love? The answer is lots, read it. It would make for an extremely explicit graphic novel. Yeah? Like it's not a novel you're buying your children. The Bible has heaps and heaps to say, and we're gonna try and touch on some of that today and and obviously over the next few weeks. It has so much to say. It is not irrelevant, but it is so, so, so relevant to our day. Now, number two, what's with the biblical sexual ethic? Great question. What is with this biblical sexual ethic? As I said before, I grew up, Christian home, Christian schools, and really fundamentally what I knew, what people talked about was sex is for marriage. But the inference in all of that, because no one wanted to talk about it, except for the one time that my year 11 Christian studies teacher, Marcel Reichen, talked about it. And we were also incredibly embarrassed the fact that someone was actually talking about sex that we hadn't heard about it for edges. We're like, so awkward, none of us really listened. And the other thing I remember is my dear friend, Peter, who was wearing like a long hooded jumper with those pockets at the front and he had a carrot. And so he put the carrot in the pocket, he pulled it down and he leaned back and it made our dear friend Barbara think that he wasn't just embarrassed but excited about what the message was. Total sidetrack, but <laughs> it was hilarious. And that's what I remember from that talk. Because we're all so embarrassed because no one talked about it. And some of you are sitting here right now, thinking I'm sitting next to my mum and dad and I'm about as embarrassed as it gets right now. Can you stop talking about this? But we have to talk about it. And that's part of the problem is because we've grown up in this thing where sex is taboo and no one wants to talk about it. And so you get to 18, 19, 20, you got people asking you questions in a bus on a basketball tournament, and you don't really know how to answer them other than that I have this conviction. But that's not enough for them because they wanna know the why. So we have gotta talk about it. Is that all right? We gotta talk about this stuff. It's not just a matter of don't have sex outside of marriage because what we end up believing in that is that sex equals bad. But then you get married and all of a sudden, what was bad is now good. And the question you gotta land with is, well, how can something that is bad be good? You with me? Anyone else grow up with that mindset? It's like, sex is bad, don't touch it, stay right away from it, get married. Oh, it's great, go for it. (laughs) And you just, in, in this weird place, it's like, well, now I'm supposed to be an expert at it, I'm supposed to understand everything about it, but no one's talked about it, and I've had to stay right away from it my entire life. How can what's bad be good? And so you understand the free love message. And this is the questions these guys are asking. Well, it feels so good. If it's a good thing, why not free love? Why not just share it around with whoever I wanna share it around with? Because it's good. But if it's bad, then why has God given me desires that feel so good? And if it's bad, why the heck would God want me to bring it into marriage, which is supposed to be good? It's confusing. Where there is no truth. But where there's truth, then all of a sudden the why becomes clear so that we can actually celebrate the what that God has given us. How are we going Hills Baptist? We going all right? And in order to understand the why, we actually have to jump all the way back to where we ended last week on this idea of identity. Come with me, come with me, come with me. Come with me to Genesis chapter two. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. Everyone say work it and to take care of it. Everyone say take care of it. Another translation says to work it and to keep it. So coming back, Identity, last week we learned that our identity is that we are made in the image of God. The reason we are made in the image of God is that we would reflect God to the world. This is where this is rooted and grounded. Genesis 2, 15. We're gonna do a little bit of hard work here. You ready? We're gonna do some work. You ready? You ready? Genesis 2, 15. This is not a creation care passage. Now, I'm all for creation care. I'm all for looking after what God has given us. We absolutely are called to be stewards. That's not what this is talking about. We have to remember that the Garden of Eden is a dwelling place of God. The Garden of Eden is a tabernacle. Tabernacle meaning dwelling place. The Garden of Eden is the first temple. The Garden of Eden is the place where God dwells with humanity. It is a picture of God's purpose for creation that He walks with humanity. Let's go, t- let's talk some Hebrew words. Okay. Work and keep. Work and keep. Both of those words. The first word is, uh, let's put it up there so that you can see with me. The first word is adab. The second word is shema. Now these two words are both words that are deeply embedded in tabernacle and temple, priestly and Levitical practice. The word adab can be used to cultivate soil, but much more often it's used as priestly worship. It's about serving God, cultivating God's presence. And you see it all through the book of Numbers. You th- see it through the book of Exodus where this word is used for the purpose of priestly duty. Same with Shema. You see it in the book of Leviticus. It's about people fulfilling a Levitical, which was a, priest, a priestly worship service unto God. What does that mean? Simplify it, David. Make it clear for me. Okay, what does it mean? It means God put humanity in the tabernacle, in His presence, that we might worship and serve Him. That's what Eden is about. God made us in His image so that we could serve Him and worship Him. And so we would become His image bearers to the world around us. What did the priests do? They ministered the presence of God to the people. Right here in the book of Genesis, humanity is given a job that flows from their identity, your job, your identity, being a a child of God, an image bearer, your job then is to reflect that image to the world. Bring Eden to creation. That's what this passage is talking about. It's profound. And it's fascinating because in that place, God makes a man and He says, this is gonna be your job. And then you go a couple more verses and He goes, it's not good for man to be alone. Yeah? Verse 18, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, What's the purpose of the helper? To do the dishes and clean the socks? No. (laughs) Guys, that was your moment. (laughs) Of course not, Dave. What's the role he's just given us? A priestly role of bearing his image to the world. And he says, actually, a man by himself, just man, can't, Appropriately bear my image to the world. There needs to be another. One who comes from man is made therefore in the image of God, unique from man, distinct from man. Yet when with man, something unique and special of the presence of God is brought to the world. Therefore I will make woman woman is not less than man. She is not more than man, she is from man's side, side by side, symbiotic relationship. And together, the helper and the man, the woman and the man are able to better fulfil God's purpose of representing His image in creation. How are we going church? This is some deeper theology then watch this. So he makes, God creates woman. It's fascinating, it's amazing. And then you get to verse 24, and this is the critical part as we start to understand the biblical sexual ethic. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united, everyone say united, to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, who wants some more Hebrew? Some of you are like, oh gosh. This is important, church. This is important. The word united there is the Hebrew word dubak. Everyone say dubak. The Hebrew word dubak is a fascinating word. It is loaded. This is the awesome thing about Hebrew, guys. Hebrew will have one word and it means like an entire book's worth of stuff. It's awesome, and this word is incredible. So there's male and there's female, and he says you're going to leave mum and dad, and you're going to dubak. And here's what it means. Put that slide up, Soph. Here's what it means. It means a union, and a, a, a bearing of responsibility, a covering, a covering of one another, that is financial, physical, spiritual emotional, psychological, and judicial. I know, right? That's what dubak means, that's what united means. Here's what the inference is. It means you only get married when you are prepared to carry this responsibility for another. You don't get married and be reliant on mum and dad for financial provision. If that's the case, you're not ready to be married. You don't get married and not be prepared to actually spiritually invest in your beloved. If that's the case, you're not ready to be married. There is a powerful sense of what this Word is saying around unity. It is so much more than, I like you, you're hot. <laughs> Let's get married. Come on and get married. That's well, not what it's about. It's a, it's a deep, incredible commitment. It is a covenant. It is not just about consent which is what the free love movement elevates as the ultimate moral high ground. No, 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 is so much more than consent. This is a deep commitment of how I am going to honour and cover another human being. This is right now, right now, I have three children. All three of those three children are debunked to me and Joe. Is that the right English, Joe and me? All three of them are because we financially look after them. We physically look after them. We spiritually oversee them, pray for them, believe for them, teach them. Emotionally, when they're, when they're hurting, we're the ones who comfort them. Psychologically, we're there to speak truth to them. And legally, judicially, we have authority over them. They are debarked to us. That is part of that union. This is the picture. And He says, for this reason, when you're prepared, when you're old enough, when you're able to leave the covering of mum and dad, then you can enter that same responsibility in what He calls marriage. Marriage is God's thing. You don't get to just redefine what marriage is. It is between a man and a woman who are prepared to do this. That's what marriage is. Someone should be saying, Amen. Amen. The problem is now, no one wants to do this. And everyone wants the last part of this verse, but no one wants the bit that comes before that. And what we end up with is depravity, mental health issues Soaring as we saw last week, society crumbling because no one's prepared. Not no one, you know what I'm saying. We don't want to do that anymore. I want to do it my way. I want to live it my way. I want love to be about me, not about Dubak. Love is an emotion. Love is a feeling. Love is me getting my desires. How dare you say that this is love? Love is love. No, it's not. You don't get to redefine love. God defines love and He says, This is love. And not to preempt the end of the message, but this is what Jesus has done for us. He has taken spiritual responsibility, physical responsibility. He has taken emotional, psychological, eternal, judicial even. He cancelled the written code against us by being crucified on the cross and making a spectacle of the enemies. Oh, someone should be getting excited about that. Don't get carried away, Dave. Come back to where we are. This is what, and then God says, in that place. You become one flesh. So, sex is a gift for a man and a woman who would do this. Why? Why this one flesh thing? Because sex is the most vulnerable exposed, humble thing you can offer another person. It is the place of absolute innocence. Here I am. I am completely open and vulnerable You, I am giving you my literal soul, and when someone else comes with that same mentality, what happens is it's two become one, the souls are knit together. It is not just an animal instinct that is fun to do, it is a deep, binding covenant moment that says, This is my commitment to you. That's the gift God gave us where I would completely trust another person to carry that vulnerability and to care for it. Does that make sense? It is a gift that God has given to edify marriage and His Here's what we, where we're going. Here's what it means. It is a part, therefore, of the image-bearing design. When sex is as God intended it, in unifying marriage, what we see is that marriages then are able to do what God created them to do, which is represent His image on the earth. What God creates, Satan counterfeits. So He wants to counterfeit that and He wants to pollute it and He wants to distort it and bring destruction. But the gift that God gave is so that marriage would truly represent His presence on the earth. This is what Ephesians 5 is all about. Look that up later, don't have time to go through it. Or come to a pre-marriage counselling course with us. Matt and Annie, it's gonna be great. We've already done it actually. This is what Ephesians 5 is, what he's getting at, is that it is a picture of Christ and the church. That's what marriage is. Marriage is a picture of what God has done for us. And we are supposed to, therefore, be his representative, his image bearer, his priestly Levite, (laughs) declaring his presence. And that is the gift of sex to humanity. How are we going? Now let me let me try and make this plain. Because the, the question then is well, does this deva- like the progressive agenda, it devalues sex? God's trying to steal our fun. Let me let me try and help you. Um Sammy, can you come up here? Let's um let's welcome Sam. <clears throat> let's let's say for me, you don't have to be that close to me, that's okay. <laughs> joke, joking i light the load. Let's say that uh, Joe and I go on a holiday, okay? This is a, like, you know, just an, ima- we're gonna enter in a, a, an imagination time. Imaginary scenario. Joe and I go on holiday with the kids. That shouldn't be an imaginary thing. We should go on holidays with our kids more often and we are going on one later. Stop sidetracking, okay. We go on holiday and we ask Sam to house-sit our house. So Sam comes along as when you house-sit someone's house, what's the thing you do? You walk around the house, you learn how things work. That's how the dishwasher works. That's how the washing machine works. And let's say that Sam comes across this piece of artwork hanging up in our lounge room. And Sam says, what's this? And I say to Sam, oh, that's that's a gift. That's actually a gift from an artist. And he goes, oh yeah, what artist? And I say, well, actually a, a real, like a world, actually the most famous minimalist artist on the planet right now. And he goes, oh. He goes, what's it worth? And I say, well, it's actually like, it's kind of priceless actually. It's a one of a kind. Nothing else exists like it in all of the earth. And he's kind of a big deal. So if it went to auction, I don't know, it might sell for 10, 20 million. Remember it's imaginary, it's not actually that, but let's just pretend. And then I say to Sam after he hears that, Sam's immediately thinking something. He's thinking, why the heck is that hanging up in your lounge room? But then I say to Sam, oh, do you, wanna, do you wanna hold it? Great, do you wanna have a good look at it? Look it up and down, spend some time with it. In fact, do you wanna just take that home? You could take that home, you can have it at home for a while, uh, you know, put your hands on it, do what you want with it. In fact, why don't you have a party and invite some friends around and you can show that to all of your friends. Your friends can touch it, you can let your friends take it home. They can have a go with it. Um, and you know, when, like when you're ready, just just bring it back. Now, what are you thinking about how I see that, that painting's value? What is my response to you in take this, share it around, do what you want with it, what does that say about how I value this painting? Uh, you don't value it a lot. That I don't value it a lot. Would we agree? Would we agree with that? Absolutely, why don't I value it? Because I'm giving it away, I'm saying, hey, have it. And I'm saying, actually, I don't care who touches it, just use it. But if I truly value, if this truly was something that was invaluable, if this truly was a a one of a kind art from the, the world's most famous minimalist artist, worth an inconceivable amount of money, what would I do with it? I'd put it in a safe. I would protect it. And the only person I would let touch it is someone who had proven themselves worthy to handle it. Do you understand where I'm going? You see, how I perceive the value of something is not in whether I flip it around, it's actually in how I care for it and I look after it. The more I care for something, the more I protect something and the more I guard it, the more I value it. Come on somebody. Thank you, Sammy, give him a clap. The biblical sexual ethic is not an oppressive controlling sexual ethic that devalues sex, it is precisely the opposite. The biblical sexual ethic says, no, 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 this is so precious. This is such a precious gift. This, this one thing that God has given us where we can truly be completely exposed and vulnerable with another human being that is so precious, therefore, you only give it to someone who has proven themselves worthy through to bark. That is a beautiful thing. That is, a, that is God showing his love and how special this gift is. That's why he says. Don't use it outside of marriage because it is so, so precious and it deserves to bark and nothing less. Now I'm super, ah. Oh, all right. I actually am friends. Write this down, sex serves the purpose of glorifying God by showing that true love values innocence, protects purity and offers complete surrender to the one it loves. Sex serves the purpose of glorifying God by showing that true love values innocence, protects purity and offers complete surrender to the one it loves you want me to define the biblical sexual ethic? It's this, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Why? Because God really, really cares about sex. It's got nothing to do with being oppressive. It's got nothing to do with being controlling. It's because He knows best. And the evidence is that since the 60s and the sexual revolution, Sex has caused more harm because it got taken out of the pattern that God gave. Do you know, oh, I'm gonna cry. I'm gonna try not to. Do you know that one in 10 children under the age of nine have been exposed to pornography? Do you know that right now, the child... Sex slave trade has almost surpassed the drug trade in its financial gains. Do you know that 80% of people under the age of 18 have viewed pornography rooted in violence? They're just three things of far too many stats that I read this week. We have taken sex out of God's pattern and it has become a weapon for destruction instead of a gift for unification. It was supposed to reveal God's presence to the world as a priestly gift and instead... It is making people turn away from marriage, from one another, and it is causing so, so, so much harm because we've handed it to the devil. Chastity in singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Why has it done those things? Because go to Genesis three, verse eight to 13. We read this before. Then a man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Here's what I need you to see. When pride enters the room, when we and this, happen, this is true for sex. This is true for any of those things. When pride, when sin enters God's good design, what happens is debark, which is responsibility, and innocence, which is being naked and unashamed. Both of those things are taken up and it becomes shame. And if we keep reading, it becomes blame. Do you see that? It goes from this responsibility of united to one another in love, this beautiful gift that God has given where they're naked and unashamed, and then all of a sudden it becomes hiding in shame and blaming everybody else. That's what happens when pride enters the room. When we give ourselves over to pride and the evidence of what comes next is that they start to make coverings. And this is fascinating. This, is, this blew my mind this week. The question, how can they be naked and unashamed? Has been rattling in my head all week. How can they be naked and unashamed? And here's the answer, because they're covered with innocence. They're naked and unashamed because they're covered with innocence, what is innocence? We've turned innocence into naivety. We've almost turned it into a term of derision. Oh, you're so innocent. Innocence is a beautiful thing that God created and He loves. It is not naivety, it is not immaturity, it's purity. And they, in the garden, in the confines of God's pattern are covered with purity. And when you're covered with innocence, there's no shame and there's no blame, there's responsibility. But what happens when pride comes in and I take for myself? And I say, This is what I'm going to take and I consume. Sex becomes like an emotional cannibalism where I will take from you to fill what's lacking in me. And I will consume another human being's soul so that my soul might be filled up. But it won't work. So I've got to go again and again and again and it will not suffice because I'm supposed to be clothed with innocence because that's the only place there is no shame. And so what we see is that they get fig leaves and they sew them together. This is fascinating. Give me your eyes for one second. Do you know what fig leaves represent in ancient Israel? Wisdom. What it's saying is Adam and Eve have looked around instead of going to God in their shame, they go to human wisdom to cover themselves. How can I cover this? How can I fill this gap? I cover myself with wisdom, with fig leaves, but it's our wisdom, not God's wisdom because we've rejected His wisdom in the first place. And so what we see is all the things we're seeing in the world today are cover up. Laura and I were chatting before. She said something really interesting. Isn't it interesting that someone can only be a drag queen with makeup? That I have to cover what's actually going on to pro- try and be somebody else. This is the whole idea of, oh, there's so much we could go into right now. But I need you to affirm me, human wisdom. I need you, I need to identify like this, then I'll be covered. I need to have this relationship or that relationship. I need to sleep with this person. Actually, my marriage isn't working. I need to get rid of that and get another one. There's so many different areas that we will go to to cover ourselves with the fig leaves. But what does God do? What happens in that moment of shame and blame, He comes in and He takes responsibility. Look at it. Look at chapter three, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and He clothed them. I feel like preaching the Gospel. He clothed them. He knows that we all struggle with pride. Every single one of us now are seeking a covering because of original sin. Every single one of us are trying to cover ourselves with the fig leaves. It will not do. There is only one road that leads to life, church. One road, one way. It is Christ. It is God clothing humanity. It is only in Him. This is why it says He's the way, the truth and the life. This is why the way of the world is broken. This is why no one else can suffice because we've lost the covering of innocence and we need the covering of the blood of Jesus to restore and redeem us that we could be naked and unashamed again. In His presence. This is the whole idea. Oh, it's the whole idea of Exodus. When the angel of death comes over and what did they do? They put the blood on the doorway that they would be covered. This is Psalm 91, where He says, I will cover you under my wings. This is Zechariah 3. Can we go to Zechariah 3? Ben, you can come up. An incredible moment. This is a prophetic word. About what Jesus is going to do. Watch this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. (laughs) The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Is that not true of us? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. That's that call to all of us, the priestly call to have authority. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. It's what's prophesied in Isaiah 53 about Jesus, the Nazarite, which means the branch. I'm going to bring my servant Jesus, see the stone I have set in front of Jerusalem. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine, and what? Your fig tree. Do you see it? Why are you not as excited as I am about this? In that that day, each of you will invite your neighbour to sit under your vine and fig tree declares the Lord Almighty. Friends, this is what Jesus has done. He has covered you if you are in Him as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our sins from us. Though your sin be red as scarlet, He will wash them white as snow. When you stand before God in Christ, when your identity is in Christ, not your sexuality, not anything else. When your identity is in Him, God sees you through Him which means He sees you clean. He sees you naked and unashamed. He sees you completely redeemed and completely set free from the curse of sin and death. He has given you clean robes. Oh, there's so many passages, clean robe, clean robe, clean robe, that's what He has done. It is the great cover up, not in a negative sense, But in a positive sense, He has covered humanity. If we would simply come to Him, lay down our pride, say, I will stop taking for myself. I will stop sowing fig leaves, but I will receive your mercy and grace and humbly chase after you. That is the Gospel. That is what Christ has done. Praise be to God. which means I don't know where you've been. I don't know what's happened to you. I know that there are dear friends in this room who have had their innocence taken from them, not given. You are still clean in Christ. There are people in this room who gave their innocence away a long, long time ago. You are clean in Christ. There are people wrestling with same sex attraction you are clean in Christ. He is the only road that leads to life. The only road. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you stand to your feet, church? what we're gonna do. Can we actually, Helen, can you just pause for a sec? We're gonna have a moment of of silence. I'm gonna pray a simple prayer, come Holy Spirit. And as we sit in this space, can we have our elders, please, all around the room. Uh, And there will be some upstairs as well, I believe, for people who would like just to go up there and not be distracted by anything else and take some time to pray but I want us just to take a moment to pause and be quiet before a holy God and to ask a simple question. Am I covered? And let Him do what He wants to do. And if you are here and you want prayer for anything, whatever it might be, let's pray together. And you don't have to go to an, someone on the edges, you can turn to the person next to you, put your arm around them and pray for them. But let's take a moment to just give this to the Lord. And if you're here and you know you're not covered, you're not trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Guys, don't hold back any, stop it. Like he's done everything. Give him your life. Give him your life. Make that step today and say, Jesus, I want your covering. I want to trust you with my life. And I'm not going to get you to put your hand up, but I am going to say, I'm going to stand at the back, just over there, next to Fred. Come. And we love to pray with you. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. bring Eden to our hearts and to our flesh, that we might be the image bearers you created us to be. Holy Spirit, we just give you whatever it is. We say, Wash us clean by the power of the blood of Jesus, which avails for me. Thank you, Lord.